Welcome to Facets. This new limited podcast series created by KHOL and STEO features stories told by original voices of the mountain life. Educators, athletes, entrepreneurs, laborers, scientists, and ski bums drawn to live in the mountains shed light on the many aspects of humans living close to nature. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. In this episode, KHOL's Will Walkie reports on the efforts to preserve the tiny population of bighorn sheep subsisting against all odds in the Teton Range. Winter 2021 was a dry one for Jackson Hole. Historically dry, actually. This past February was the coldest in the valley since 1993 and the least snowy since 91. But you wouldn't know that from driving over Teton Pass. <laughs> on a Bluebird Sunday, I'm seeing people jockeying over parking spots, walking with skis on their backs onto well-known skinning and bootpacking tracks, laughing as they talk about lines they want to hit. For many backcountry skiers, like local mountain guide Mark Smiley, this is a mecca for their favorite sport on the planet. It's basically the perfect way to exercise in the wintertime. It's better than running, it's better than riding a chairlift, and then when you get to the top and the end of your workout, you have a powder run. I mean, it's like the best, it's just the best combo. So you get rewarded for the effort with some of the best skiing arguably in the world. And the thing is, word is starting to get out. Backcountry skiing was steadily gaining in popularity in previous decades, but since the pandemic, it's risen to a whole new level. Some backcountry gear shops saw double the sales in 2020 or more. It's also led to increased trail use, rescue incidents, and applications for camping permits. On the one hand, it's gotten more people outside, a good thing. But for a particular local animal, Increased recreation on our public lands has also led to some unintended consequences. The sheep are sort of emblematic of, of that landscape. To me, they've become sort of the icons of the Tetons, the, the symbol of its wildness. Bighorn sheep have inhabited Jackson Hole for thousands of years, with massive herds once rivaling that of elk or deer. But now, just an estimated 125 animals live high in the Tetons, isolated from the rest of the North American population and vulnerable to extinction. The story of how we humans came to know this begins with Michael Whitfield. Whitfield's grandparents helped settle Teton Valley, Idaho, and he's currently a county commissioner there. I met him at his house to chat over coffee. I kind of come alive when I get above treeline. I love, I love the alpine, I love getting up high. Whitfield began studying bighorn sheep as an undergrad student working for the Forest Service. He says he got hooked on studying the species the first time he laid eyes on one. And one day, this old mountain man guy who was my boss said, you want to see some bighorn sheep? And we went up on a pass in the center of the range, and sure enough, there was a, a, a large band of, of bighorns. Uh, and so I tried to get a little closer to see what was going on, and they all disappeared over a ledge. So I ran up there quite some distance, and they had totally evaporated. They were just gone into the into the rocks, uh, and that sort of fascinated me. You know, these animals that were persisting in this rugged country and, you know, how they were making a living. At the time, and this was in the early 80s, a discovery like this would have shocked national wildlife managers. Bighorns in the Tetons were thought to be extinct, 
wiped off the earth due to cut-off migration patterns, invasive species, and development around Jackson Hole. But as a graduate student at Idaho State, Whitfield started documenting the sheep with his own eyes and talking with others who had seen them. I started interviewing old-timers. I got in touch with every old-timer that I could that had any knowledge of the sheep. And it was fascinating because these old guys, you know, they were kind of people on their last legs. And you start talking about the high country and the Tetons and the bighorn sheep. And they get this sort of dreamy look in their eyes and start talking about interactions that they had had. And frankly, a lot of them were poachers. They'd been up there hunting sheep. Or there were miners. There used to be mines high in the range before the park was established and they'd run into sheep. And so they'd tell all these stories. And so I started piecing together what the, what the distribution was and what the numbers were and, you know, a better picture and, and sort of laid that historical context. Whitfield also says he tracked records further back than white settlement. Native Americans have lived in the Tetons for around 10,000 years. And throughout that long history, Whitfield says there are connections between indigenous peoples and animal migration patterns. As I wandered around the Tetons, I would find places where there was lithic scatter, pieces of obsidian in a sedimentary landscape, you know, totally out of place. Some Native American had sat there in that place maybe a thousand years ago chipping an arrowhead while watching a pass where the sheep might come through. All the while, Whitfield was up in the Tetons himself looking for sheep. And in many ways, he was starting this research from scratch, tracking their movements, behaviors, what they ate, their numbers. Sometimes he'd set out into the woods with 80-pound instruments on his back for 10 days at a time or more. There was no such thing as GPS. There was no such thing as GIS. Uh, I was locating things on a map and, you know, All that work led to a 233-page graduate thesis that became foundational for Teton sheep research and is still referenced today. Whitfield says the report came as a bit of a surprise for local agencies. They recognized that we had a significant population there that that had been there for thousands of years, so they're one of those original populations, never a transplant anything. They were genetically distinct, and they were in trouble. And... That's been evident for 40 or 50 years. Whitfield says the sheep were in trouble then and still are now. That's why he helped form the Teton Range Bighorn Sheep Working Group in the 1990s, a body that makes wildlife conservation decisions on behalf of the herd. For instance, they recently recommended killing mountain goats, an invasive species, from helicopters in Grand Teton National Park, a controversial hunt that led to over 50 dead goats just this year and lots of angry social media comments. But perhaps the most contentious recent recommendation, one that's led to multiple op-eds and public meetings, has to do with backcountry ski closures. One meeting in October about this drew more than 200 participants. Uh, So the working group uh, has uh, 26 recommendations for Grand Teton National Park. Uh, At the southern end of that massive, so that's south of Cody Peak, south of No Name, but the head of Jensen Canyon, where the sheep do in fact winter. Also recommending uh, a winter closure uh, in the South Fork of Granite Canyon. Kind of on the, the working side. group, along with public lands organizations across Jackson Hole, are recommending that more than 21,000 acres are closed to recreators during the winter months. Several members of the crowd were not happy about that. It seems like the closure is like a one-way, one-way ticket and it, it just leads to more closures. I don't really 
want to give much comment or questions because I don't really feel like they'll have any impact. So yeah, just a voice of disapproval for the process. Is that when you're swallowing a bitter pill, it sometimes helps to feel like other people are swallowing it too. So I personally feel like the sheep are swallowing a bitter pill. The skiers are swallowing a bitter pill. Hunters are also swallowing a bitter pill. But I'm wondering if anyone has a comment about um, other groups that are having to give something up. And Other skiers and snowboarders are more on board and frankly unhappy with their peers for putting up a fuss, especially after there were five previous opportunities for the public to engage with the biology community. By some estimates, and this number is very disputed, 95% of ski terrain perceived as high quality by local members of the backcountry community is still preserved under these closures. Most of the iconic lines will remain open. This is where we're at. And I think we should be really proud, but it's also time to get on board. Be proud and get on board. But still, the question is, why the closures at all? To answer that, we have to go to another wildlife biologist. Allie Quartermont works for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. And like Whitfield, she started studying bighorn sheep while she was a graduate student, this time at the University of Wyoming. I think for me, it's a species that matches me pretty well because uh, personally, you know, I love living in Jackson Hole. I love being in the mountains. And so being able to work on a species that also lives in the mountains is, is very fortunate. Cordemanche's master's thesis is another foundational document that tracks how humans impact bighorn sheep. In lieu of published peer review, this thesis has been looked over by a substantial panel of big name biologists and scientists from around the country. I talked with several local biologists who work with bighorn sheep every day. Basically, they universally accept this data. The question behind it was, you know, is winter backcountry recreation uh, negatively affecting bighorn sheep in the Tetons? And so in order to get at that question, basically what we did is we collared a bunch of bighorn sheep, uh, all females, and followed those sheep over three years. Females or ewes are better to study, Quartermont says, because they're more indicative of a herd's health. They're the ones birthing lambs and caring for them, and a lot of ewes are needed for a successful group. Males, on the other hand, are a bit more useless. In fact, there are only a few dominant rams that do the breeding, establishing themselves during a world-famous rut when they smack their heads together at 40 miles an hour. Most of the other dudes are out of luck. And then at the same time, uh, basically, not really collared, but um, basically collected the same data from backcountry skiers by randomly asking skiers to carry GPS units with them while they were out recreating in the Tetons. And so basically what we found, what we could see was, um, you know, where the sheep were going, and then at the same time where backcountry skiers were going to see if there was any impact. It sounds easy enough, right? Just go put some collars on sheep and start tracking. But Cordemont said that was a massive ordeal. To show what gathering sheep data is like, Game & Fish invited KHOL and other local media to watch some captures among a different area herd. This one lives at a bit lower elevation on the National Elk Refuge north of Jackson. The day of the captures fell on a cold morning in December. The researchers are huddled together when they could be, sipping coffee and shifting in their shoes, trying to stay warm as we await what happens next. That's the sound of a helicopter whizzing around above us, ready to test the local sheep for pneumonia and other indicators of herd health. But we have to catch them first, and the method is pretty extreme. 
the way that that we uh, catch sheep in these types of situations is using a helicopter with what's called a net gunning technique. Um, so basically the helicopter, you know, flies, finds the sheep that, that they want to catch um, and then uh, shoots a net out of the helicopter on top of the, uh, on top of one sheep and the sheep gets tangled in the net. And then basically the helicopter kind of touches down, um, a person jumps out called a, they're actually called a mugger and then, you know, grab the sheep, tie its feet together, hobble it, um, you know, do whatever we need to do. So where was she in the line? In this case, the sheep were flown three at a time, hundreds of feet up in the air, back to where we were waiting. Oh, guys, everyone, we're supposed to measure their faces, so... The helicopter touches down, and students rush to action, grabbing the sheep and blindfolding them. Quartermanch explains why. Their eyesight is really their number one sense, so um, the blindfold is really kind of removes all that visual stimulation. When a black cloth is over the sheep's eyes, they just kind of go limp. No sedatives necessary. The researchers start collaring and taking samples as fast as possible. It's like a COVID test. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> then about 10 minutes later, they just take the blindfold off and let the ewe go. Good job. Now imagine that process, but on the rocky ridges of the Tetons. Can you imagine worse terrain? Cordemanche brings us back to fieldwork for her master's thesis. You know, conditions need to be pretty much perfect. No clouds, no wind, um, you know, perfect day, not too, not too warm, not too cold to be able to fly up there in a helicopter and catch these animals. Um, and even with that said, you know, the folks that we've worked with in the past, um, they've said that this is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest, uh, wildlife captures they've ever done. In the end, they were able to call her 23 sheep. Quartermanch also supplemented her research anecdotally by observing the animals in the summer and skiing into the backcountry in the winter. And the final results were pretty compelling, concluding that, yes, backcountry recreation does negatively impact sheep for a couple of reasons. One, they're losing habitat, up to 30% of their winter range just by avoiding humans. The other major finding that we had was that uh, sheep that live in areas with higher levels of backcountry skiing move around a lot more on a daily basis. And so they're burning a lot of extra calories, basically trying to avoid backcountry skiers. Whitfield, who studied the sheep decades ago, saw something similar. I have some, had some observations early on where I would see animals up high. And in one case, some snow machiners were coming up the backside of this peak where these animals were hanging out. The animals freaked out and dove off into 20 foot deep snow, not survivable. The snowmobilers, I, I don't think ever even knew the animals were there, but they caused that reaction. He says evolutionarily, bighorn sheep feel most comfortable in a fight against a predator on a steep slope. And we humans, like it or not, can be perceived as a threat. In the Tetons, it can get just so exposed, and food is incredibly scarce. For northern ungulates like the sheep, energy, which they've been storing up all summer long, is like the income that they spend in the winter. And in the Tetons, that savings account can drain fast. I've watched the sheep in winter, and you'll see them lying down with their feet curled, or their legs underneath them, and just trying to conserve energy. Uh, I went up on some of the peaks in the northern range trying to get a sense of what the vegetation was on those winter ranges. This was in the summer. And you'd find maybe a big rock up high in this windswept zone. And 
you could see where a bighorn had just hung out behind that rock. There were just all kinds of pellets there. That That's where they'd spent a lot of their time. Carson Butler is a wildlife biologist for Grand Teton National Park, where some of the largest and most controversial closures are being proposed. In Colorado, around resort areas like Aspen and Vail, he says elk populations have been declining and certain herds are basically extinct. And that's been tied to immense increases in recreation on public lands. He hopes Jackson Hole doesn't repeat that history. There's really an opportunity here to kind of set an example and kind of be at the front of of this emerging issue and show a lot of other similar communities like a, a way to get through this and where we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. The proposed closures are still being debated and talked over, and the working group is taking suggestions. Then it'll be time for a National Environmental Policy Analysis, or NEPA, where more public comment will be taken. But the proposals are still rubbing people the wrong way right now. Mark Smiley, the guide we met earlier, leads climbing and ski mountaineering adventures in Alaska, the lower 48, South America, and Europe. And I was trying to impress my now wife uh, by getting into it. And it started out on snowshoes and a snowboard and just hiking up and then got a backcountry set up and uh, been going, you know, getting after it since then in a host of capacities. And it's just it's just the best thing ever. Smiley says he first heard about the closures through Instagram ahead of that packed October meeting. He says the idea of shutting off wilderness to humans is very concerning. And he skied in a lot of the areas up for review. And you really do not need to be an elite alpinist to go there. You just need to ha want to have a special day where you see basically nobody, nobody. And, you know, it's, it's like a soul searching mission. So I'm not, you know, these, these are not areas that I'm like, every day I go there and it's, you know, you're going to make me have to go somewhere else. It's not that. It's this fine china of a objective where you pull it out on special occasions and it is awesome. I mean, like totally special. And then you put it back for that next special occasion. He's also seen bighorn sheep, but only a few times. One or two of the times when cross paths, they just kind of looked at me and no big deal. And then one of the times, you know, this one is like walking alongside us, like, you know, maybe 200 or 300 yards away and just kind of cruising along. And I was like, huh, what are you doing? You know, like, where, where are you at? Are you lost? You know, because it wasn't in, in the herd. And, and then uh, plenty of other friends of, you know, pictures of sheep just like licking rocks and <laughs> doing sheep things. And many other backcountry skiers report similar experiences. Butler says that makes them confused about why closures are even necessary. Smiley says another thing that doesn't really help is that he feels like the public engagement process hasn't been that helpful. I feel like the feedback I've gotten from friends and colleagues of the collaborative process is that it has been more window dressing of, you know, the use of the word collaborative. And I think it's more of a, uh-huh, 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 and then they write down whatever they want. And so they're pushing their agenda, you know, under this banner of we're being collaborative, and it's it feels disingenuous to me. Online conversations about the closures, op-eds, social media posts, have gotten hostile at times. Elizabeth Kutralakis is another concerned member of the skiing community, and she compares it to politics. If you're on one side, you're anti-science, and the other, anti-freedom. I find it ironic that this happened during COVID and then people kind of started 
labeling it as a right or left issue. Like it's an animal. (laughs) It's okay to feel angry about things, but it's also really important to talk to people about this with respect and really try to see things from their shoes. She still says the vast majority of people are civil. And at the end of the day, whatever the park decides, community members will follow the closures. Still, there are always a few angry people that those involved remember the most. For Cordemanche, the game and fish biologist, this whole process has strained some of her relationships. It's tough because a lot of times that, you know, that science kind of pushes up against, yeah, people's emotions, their values, um, how they, you know, see themselves and, and want to recreate and enjoy this landscape. Smiley says he wants to feel like the two sides can find a middle ground on this. Plenty of folks feel that their particular point of view has already made sacrifices. But there is still some wiggle room. There's no good argument that says humans don't have impact. The question is, is there significant impact? I haven't talked to anyone, and myself included, that thinks that making this sheep herd extinct is, you know, like, well... Give them, you know, give them a chance. And if they don't survive, then screw them. You know, nobody thinks that because largely backcountry skiers are very concerned about the environment. Smiley also says he doesn't want to see closures in perpetuity and there needs to be better communication about what it would take to lift them. There needs to be a sunset clause on any proposed closures. To have closure in perpetuity into the story is a really bad precedent to set in public lands, because these these are public lands for future generations. We can't just rape and pillage it, but at the same time, if we can't touch it, then we've lost the most precious thing that is offered by the United States government, in my opinion. Plus, before any changes are implemented, he also hopes to get some questions answered, a long list of them, starting with, why are we killing mountain goats, who are as charismatic as any animal in Jackson Hole? Is it helping? Whitfield says the invasive species has been a concern for decades. There was a very small number of goats that were introduced into the Snake River Range, and that population just exploded. And they had a pretty significant effect on the habitat there. And that's typical of a introduced population. They, they, the predators aren't used to them. They're, they just kind of go gangbusters. And so I was very concerned about goats getting established in the Tetons, what that might mean. That was back when there were two or three seen there. That, that's changed. Obviously, we, yeah. they became a big impact. And if the sheep herd is so small, why can't we just ferry in some reinforcements from elsewhere in the state, like the Bighorn Mountains or even Miller Butte in Jackson? Cordemanche explains that disease transmission, especially pneumonia, is a concern for this genetically isolated herd. So usually with bighorn sheep, the first time pneumonia gets into a population, usually about 90% of those animals die. Um, So in a herd where we only have, you know, 100 sheep, if 90 of those sheep died... um, That's extinction, basically, It's extinction, basically, yep. So the risk is just just too high. And right now, there's no test to tell 100% whether or not a sheep has pneumonia, though maybe that changes in 20 years. Game and Fish also sells one ram hunting tag a year, though it's usually used less often. But even that's been a sticking point brought up at public meetings. Why are we voluntarily killing an animal that's so endangered? But remember, it's one male a year, at most. And the males just aren't as important as the ewes. You know, we feel like biologically, 
you know, taking one male bighorn sheep um, is not, you know, doesn't really affect the biology of this population. Um, you know, the majority of what we do, especially with this bighorn sheep herd, is funded uh, either directly or indirectly by hunters. So things like, you know, my salary, working for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, my salary is 100% funded by hunting license revenue. Currently, three small sections of Grand Teton National Park are already closed for winter backcountry use and have been for years. Are those working? Well, the biology community says it's tough to know because it's on such a small ecological scale. So we can't, again, it's one of those things that we can't say for sure. But um, I can say that of the data that we have, what it shows is that the sheep that live in those closures have more lambs with them than sheep outside the closures in the wintertime as a whole, which could be coincidence. Um, but over time, like there's definitely that trend. So that, you know, indicates that potentially, you know, sheep that are living in those closures have higher lamb survival um, because they're protected from disturbance. And this leads to the big question for folks. When might the closures be lifted once implemented? And is this data really secure enough to justify something so drastic as closing more than 21,000 acres? In the Sierra Nevada, closures were lifted after their bighorn population rose from about 100 animals in 2000 to over 600 in 2015. What about here? Well, Cordemanche won't sugarcoat it. If the population starts to increase, that means the closures are working, so they shouldn't necessarily go away. And in the Tetons, we're talking about a more extreme area where population growth just isn't as easy. I think the hard part with Teton bighorn sheep especially is the population is so small, it's probably going to take a long time for them to recover. So, you know, realistically, it's not going to be a year or two or five we're probably talking about a longer time period. This is clearly a difficult ask for the backcountry community. It's not easy or fun, and the skiers feel targeted. But both Whitfield and Cordemanche say they hope they can convince folks that the sacrifice is worth it. With the numbers being where they're at, one single avalanche taking out 10 or so female sheep could doom the whole herd. Again, we're talking about extinction being on the line, something nobody wants. I wouldn't say that the recommendations are going to result in a huge bump in the population numbers uh, just because they're pretty winter limited. But it gives us a chance to save them, to, to ensure that they're there. They've been there for thousands of years. They shouldn't be eliminated on our watch. That just shouldn't happen. I think we can, you know, have, have the spectacular wildlife, have spectacular skiing. If we can't solve this issue in a place like Jackson Hole, it just, I don't know where we can do it. Biologists for several public lands organizations are also against future expansion of ski resorts like Grand Targhee and Jackson Hole. Plenty have pointed out how much resort development has already hindered the wildlife around here. But of course, we can't go back in time. For now, the best we can do is not encroach on the sheep's territory through either voluntary or government-enforced closures. The success of these efforts is not going to hinge on government regulations. It's going to hinge on the public, the general public, buying into the idea that this is something we need to protect. In my observations, the backcountry community is getting on board, even if slowly and skeptically. But will it be enough? Many challenges lie ahead. Government regulation, misinformation, increased backcountry use, people not wanting to follow the rules. One person 
like one avalanche for the sheep, could bring this whole operation down. But the thing is, so far, the sheep remain against all odds in the Tetons, and the effort to keep them there in the future might just have a chance of success. For KHOL and Steo, I'm Will Walkie. This episode was made in collaboration with Steo, stewards of the mountain life. This episode was reported and produced by Will Walkie, with editorial and production support from Kyle Mackey and Emily Cohen. Music scoring by Sheena and Jacob Ferguson. Creative direction and executive production provided by Steo's Liz Barrett and Jesse Vanderlinden. Facets logo design by Kika McFarland.